Welcome to episode number 46 of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. In this episode of The Thermal, we talk to the pilot and author behind The Art of Soaring, a book that puts you in the cockpit with amazing photos and stories. We also speak to Monique Taylor, the author of Suicide Jockeys, the making of the World War II combat glider pilot. PureTrack is a new gliding tracking app from New Zealand. We found out why it's gaining in popularity. And finally, remembering Martin Simons, the author of numerous books about gliding and a huge contributor to the gliding movement in general. That's all in episode number 46 of The Thermal. The Art of Soaring isn't your average book about gliding. A blurb on the title page describes it succinctly as a photo book with stories, extraordinary flights, and flight technique about gliding in the mountains. This coffee table book landed on my doorstep with a thud a few weeks ago. To do it justice, I sat down at a table and slowly worked my way through this beautifully produced book. It actually made me feel like I was riding along. Simon Lemmerer is the man behind The Art of Soaring. I've reached him at home in Weinitzen, Austria. Simon, I'm loving this book. Talk to me about the inspiration behind The Art of Soaring. Um, hi, Harry. Um, thanks for your kind words about my book. Uh, my book is uh, like um, inspired by a few other gliding books, for sure. And there was a, um, um, my dad was glider pilot like in the 60s and 70s here in Austria. And there was an American guy who made a book about our airfield in Eigen. It, it's called Soaring Valley. And it's, it's, a, it's a book that was only published in the, in the U.S. market. Oh, yeah. And I got this book from my dad when I was really young. Um, and I discovered that and all the old pictures. And it really was, um, in all these years, one of my uh, thoughts in my back, you know, when, when, uh, when um, to, to make a, a good and fine gliding book. And um, as every glider pilot, I grew up with all these classic books like from Helmut Reichmann or Jochen right. from Kalkreuth or stuff like that. And um, I was and, always. And those books are a bit technical. They're, I mean, they're good books, but they're not yeah, eye candy. And as I am a graphic designer, and it's um, that graphic design and teaching graphic design and typography is my passion. I wanted to to make, uh, and that was main the background. Then uh, the really most beautiful gliding book in the world. Right. So that you were able like, to combine your your passion for gliding. And yeah, you've got sure. the skill set. You're the photographer, the graphic designer, so you you have the ability to do this. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, it it it's, it was like um, uh, I started gliding really late with 26 because because I had a lot of uh, two companies before and a lot of I did a lot of work and also a lot of photography professional wise. And my dad always uh, said to me, Simon. Uh, don't hurry. Um, you can make your gliding license when you're later. It's not a sport for when that you have to start young, and you will get really good with 35 when you start later. Yeah. yeah. And and he was right then there, and um, I I started then photographing. Um, so when I was when I when I when I bought my libella, I started uh, again photography uh, in the photographing in the in the in the glider. Yeah. And 
And um, it was around uh, 10 years ago when I started uh, again to, to take pictures in the glider. And um, yeah, all these pictures uh, were, were summing up, you know, a lot of pictures were taken. And someday I, I, I had the idea to, to put them in a book. And the first idea was to make a book about, uh, about the libelle and about flying the libelle because uh, my first glider was a libelle and I flew around 1,000 hours so, in the libelle. So I'm going to interrupt for a sec, Simon. So a lot of listeners yeah, sure. will know what a libelle is. I do, but I'm old. Uh, describe, <laughs> describe this glider. It's classic. I mean, it's almost, it's a vintage glider now, I would think. Yeah, it's a vintage glider. And, um, the, the good thing is, um, it, it is, it is really well designed glider. And as I'm a graphic designer and a designer, uh, I really, I'm looking forward to, to good design gliders and the libelle was always my dream because I love the shape of the, of the fuselage and, uh, I love that uh, there is a company called Streifeneder in Germany, which are making a lot of improvements at this for this glider. You know, on, on these fifty-year-old gliders. Yeah, on these fifty-year-old gliders, and the, and the glider itself, it's uh, for its age. It's a really had, had a really good um, had, had a really good glide ratio yeah. with these improvements, like wing fuselage. Uh, uh, stuff or winglets, um, it improved a lot, and it's basically uh, like an LS4. Yeah, you the, can compare first, it to first an LS4 generation of glass uh, gliders, right? Yeah, for sure. And for, with uh, it's it's basically up to 140 kilometers, like an LS4. And when you put some water in it, then it's 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 a really good and nice glider, and you can fly really 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 far with it too. And uh, it's all also not that expensive, you know. Could yeah. you get a get a get a good libelle with for twenty thousand euros? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Around you don't need to spend a hundred thousand euros to have a yeah, good for glider. sure. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. And 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 that gap to that to that uh, one hundred thousand euros is not that big. That it's like um, I had some days where I flew eight hundred fifty kilometers with the libelle and yeah. the guys with the. With the with the went went to stool flew only yeah. seven hundred fifty. But, you know, it, it but was, yeah, I, the, the smile on your face is just as big. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So listen, <laughs> it you, was always big. Yeah. You've got the glider. You've got all these photographs. That's your skill set. So, I love the book. So, tell the listeners a bit about the layout of this book. What do we have here? Stories, different stories, different people. Talk to me about that. Yeah. Um, for me, it was like um, reading all those um, older books, like the book from Jochen from Kalkkort. Um, all the stories were fascinating me most, you know, not only the technical stuff, you know, that how to fly, uh, write McCready um, preferences or stuff like that. It was only, that was, you read one time and then you check it and you, you don't want to read it again. And, yeah, and all these, these glider books, with the stories, they were like fascinating, and every winter you put it out and, and read it again, and that was one of the main motivations and the main main things I was thinking about in the book, um, to provide stories that you read every winter. Mm -hmm. And as as I had a lot of stories with my libelle and a few really nice uh, flights um, from me, that. 
there went a time in the whole development process of the book where I thought about to put some guest editors in it. Um, and uh, I talked then to Bert Schmelzer and Benny Bachmeier, and both were really motivated and they they saw some of saw some of the layouts of the book and they wanted really to contribute and they, they wrote two stories for the book. And so the idea to, to make it more open and to put some guests guests in the book were born, you know, and then the book developed from a 200-page Libelle book to that book that it is right now. i got to say it totally and, works because yeah. I, I come from a news background as well. And what I love about it as well yeah. is that these, these stories are current. They're from last year. You know, Gordon Batten, yeah, Baptiste sure. Innocent, uh, has his flights. The, it's right now. It's not from 10 years ago. Well, there are a couple stories from 10 years ago, but a lot yeah, of it is sure. current. Yeah, and as, um, as there is um, that that special wind in the Alps called Fern, and we are all fascinated about that, that wind, I decided to make really a whole chapter for beginners to fly in that fern conditions. Mm-hmm. And it's also, there are also a few technical things in the book, not only stories. And I think I made a good mixture of both, not only that, that really dry learning book. Um, it is really, uh, there are really a few stories in it where it, yeah. that you can read in 10 years and 15 years. And the other thing I like about it is, it's interactive. So talk to me about how you work together with We Glide to get this together. Yeah, that was uh, um, basically it was like um, I started to work on the book five years ago, and there um, five years ago there was no We Glide, but there was a website called um, uh, Skylines. I don't know if you no. know that no. a website. And as I'm a graphic designer and I'm I'm usually uh, working with websites and, and, and digital products too. I really hated that OLC interface, you know. Oh, it's All still that, terrible. That, yeah, it's still terrible, but but it was like OLC and it was like the the biggest the biggest player on the market, you yeah. know. But I hated it. I really hate to use um, bad designed user interfaces and, and that was that your OLC was really not bad. And when I had the idea to put some interactive elements in the book, um, I was using Skylines in the first place around four years ago. And then Skylines, the developer of Skylines uh, stopped developing the, the website. And then they, the We Guide guys came up and I talked to them last year and I asked them if it's okay for them to, to put, to put uh, that interactive thing in the book that you can, can photograph a QR code to come to the fl- uh, to, to get to the flight um, in the browser. And, and that was, right, so I'm just going to the- reiterate that. So as you're reading the book, you can use your, yeah. your mobile phone and you can get the barcode and that takes you to back to WeGlide to a graph of the flight you can see yeah, the maps. Sure. It just it makes it all really cool and interactive, and it feels like you're in the cockpit. Yeah, for sure. And that that was mainly the idea behind it. And and um, I, I also did some some really high um, uh, high resolution screenshots of the flight mm-hmm. because uh, not all the guys and all all the, the glider pilots are uh, 
used to that digital digital stuff and they want to see the, the barogram or, or the flight path too. So it was uh, the decision that I put both of them in the books. Right. And and one of of, of the um, uh, one of my second thoughts about interactivity in the book was to make these big panorama sites, you know, have around eight big pan- panorama sites you can uh, fold out, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, it's great. And that idea was, came from a picture I took from the Southern Alps, from the Dolomites, where I made a picture with about 90 megapixels in the, in the flight. And I thought about to, to, to put that in the book. And when you put it like on a really small format, it never, it, right. it would never be that detailed. Yeah, yeah. And then I had a, a, a mountaineer from South Tyrol um, who puts, who put, who was, uh, who, who got the picture of that big panorama and put all the, uh, mountains in it, you know, really yeah, all stitch, the mountains them together. Like, yeah. yeah for, and there are really around 30 mountains in it, uh, all the, the classics like the, the Dreizinnen or the Mamulata, but also the smaller ones. And I hear really you flipping through to, the book <laughs> to provide it. Yeah, for sure. Hey, so listen, one of the questions I have for you is flight safety. Taking those pictures, you've got great shots, but how do Mm -hmm. you work the balance between flying safely, doing what you're doing, and getting these great shots? Because you're in a small cockpit. I think you've used different types of cameras Mm -hmm. from larger format to smaller ones. Tell, Tell me about how you walk that line. Yeah, I came I came from a uh, photographic background, and um, uh, I had a lot of uh, really big and good lenses from Canon in my uh, photography um, backpack. And uh, when I started gliding, I stopped photographing in the glider because all of the gear was too mainly big. too big too big to, to put it in the glider. Yeah. And then um, around 2011, I think, or 2012, Sony came up with that concept of the Alpha 7 camera. Yeah, and a it is a, yeah. yeah, it is a full format camera and it's really small. And they had a good collaboration with Zeiss. Zeiss is an, uh, uh, the a lens, company yeah. which makes lenses. And they made a perfect combination of that camera and that size 35 millimeter uh, lens, you know, and that is a perfect lens for landscape photography. And I, uh, a friend of mine told me that this camera came out. And as my, can, my whole Canon setup was only lying around and all my flashes, I decided to sell all the cameras. <laughs> I really sold them all the good uh, lenses and all the stuff and only bought that uh, one camera, that Sony Alpha. And then I started to take pictures again in the glider. Right, 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 right. And that is the camera I take with me. I have in the cockpit and I take mostly all of my photos with it. It's, it's a small camera. It's like those cameras our grandfathers used to have, like uh, the original Leicas with just a, yeah. a fixed lens. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah for sure. And the, the, the important thing is it has 30 megapixels of a full format sensor, you know, and that is really important. You can crop a lot. You can, you can, uh, the pictures are really, really great and really, really good. Um, and yeah, I started to, to take pictures again and, 
Um, Safety-wise, I'm trying to take only the only pictures when when it's really safe, you know, not when I'm circling on the ridge or or, or being uh, really really close to the mountains. I, I would never consider to take pictures there. I'm trying to uh, take the pictures when I'm circling most most of it when I'm uh, alone in a, in a thermal and. I tried to, um, and that was the good thing uh, uh, when flying the Libelle, it circles from alone, you know, and it's like circling, you can, you can right, you put trim, it You trim on, it out. And yeah, you, you trim it out yeah. and it circles alone and you can, you can take really good pictures. With the Ventus, it's more like the same. It, it really circles very stable. It's not that good like in the Libelle, but... Um, when I when you're used to it, you can you can really good you take good pictures and I have a really nice system to um, and a really nice uh, concept to photograph through the canopy. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So I was going to ask about that. How do you work with that? Because sometimes it does distort the the picture a little bit. So how do you deal with that? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I have uh, some pictures too that are really a little bit distorted. Uh, I like it mm-hmm. because it's sure it's, it's like, like being in the cockpit. Being in the cockpit, you know, it's like uh, documentary photography, you know, mm-hmm. and it's it's not um, um, it's not every time really good, but I use a, a, a polarization filter on the lenses, mm-hmm. and I have some kind of uh, I don't know the English name, some kind of pipe, you know, some kind of thing you put on the lens where you have where you can. Um, um, minimize a few of the reflections of yeah, the a filter a filter yeah not only a filter it's like from um from rubber and you can put it like on the canopy and then you have a small uh, a small space um which is not where, where no uh, light is reflected through the canopy okay, okay, and okay. i use that and it, it really works well and um yeah and it's really um Basically, um, all the gliders like the Ventus or the LS gliders, which have a really long canopy, are reflecting more like um, than the Libelle does because the Libelle has not that long canopy in the front, you know? It's got a unique, so, beautiful canopy. Yes, it does. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's really better to, to take pictures from the Libelle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, w- with all the other gliders, I try to... to I try now to photograph out of the window more mm-hmm. because of the reflections, but but usually it, it works really well with my system. Yeah, and, um, I, a good friend of mine is is Toby Bach, and Toby Toby um, is like a professional glider photographer, and his focus is really like making the best picture of a glider, and to 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 take a picture of the glider which is really big in the picture and. Has a lot of good details and, uh, and and a lot of good background too. And, and I think my photography. I've is seen more his like, photographs. He's he does a great job. Yeah, he does a great job. But um, I think my my type of photography is more documentary. You know, more yeah. like sure, landscape and, and 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 yeah, you say it like so, catching that moment. So Simon, what has the reaction been to your book? How many did you print? How many have you sold? What's the reaction been? But the reaction is overwhelming. It's like um, we printed around one one thousand three hundred books. Yeah, 
And now I sold around uh, I sold around one thousand of them, so that's oh, that really is really 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 nice. Um, it's like um, it it's sold that good that we decided uh, the friend of mine Werner and me that we make now a little company, a publishing company, and we are now in the middle of the work for three books, which are coming out in. Uh, in autumn, okay. Two gliding books and one paragliding book. Cool. Because Werner is is a really a great paraglider. He was a, a really famous glider pilot. He he did the the story in the book from the Baron Hilton Cup. Okay, yeah, which won. is a I, again the Baron Hilton Cup. But that's a bit of history for listeners who are uh, over forty will have read about this and and that film that was made, the Sunship Games. It's it's a great yeah. part of the book as well. Um, another thing for listeners to know, I mean, this is a passion project for you. You're not really making money on this. Yeah. It's, it's like, um, I own, I started five years ago with the book and I, I started counting hours, you know, in, in our business, you, you're like counting hours when you, billable when hours, you, yeah. yeah, billable hours when you work for customers, you know? And um, I, I worked really for around five years on the book. And, and uh, exactly one year ago, my wife uh, said to me, Simon, you never finished that book. <laughs> just just don't, don't, don't live your dreams. Uh, you, have, you, have, you, you will not finish it because you have, you, you have not. Because you have a lot of customers in your company. And, and I'm a teacher for graphic design too, so I had a lot of work. Uh, or I have a lot of work, and so I decided to to make myself a customer. Good you idea. Uh, I stopped uh, making uh, taking new customers at the time one year ago, and uh, I made myself a customer and started to tag hours. And from that point on, the, the book was there were the, the book was around twenty percent ready. You know, one year ago. And then I started to tag the hours and I, I was like stopping that when I, I got the print data to the, to the print job. And, and then where there were around 550 hours. So, um, that book, uh, I could sell around, I could sell around 3000 copies of it. And then it would be around that it would pay Break off, even. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, break even. So it's it's really a, a passion project, and I always wanted to do that project. I always wanted to combine two of my greatest passions, you know, design well, and you, gliding. You certainly succeeded. I've got to tell you, I've, I'm, I really like the book. <laughs> so yeah. people who are listening, I've got there are people that listen to the thermal all over the world. How do they mm -hmm. get it? How do they get their hands on this book? Uh, yeah, um, it's uh, like we have a lot of um, we have a lot of um, shops which provide the books all around the world we have in england a company who ships it the naf boys we have in 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 the states in in um in america um yeah, wait, wheel which you know what we're going to do you're going to send me an email with those links for those various places to buy it i'll put it on sure. i'll put it on the uh Thermal's Facebook page, and then people will be able to find that, it there. And I think if they also Google nice. the, the, yeah. the art of soaring, there will be links that come up. 
Yeah, for sure. And we have also an online shop, and we uh, we sold in our online shops book to books to twenty five countries around the world now. Excellent. It's it's not that big problem to get that book, and yeah. So Simon, the the gliding season's uh, on the verge of starting where you live. It's it's getting warm. Uh, what are your gliding yeah. goals for this coming season? Any particular things in mind? Oh. Um, Yes, I I would love to to um, I, I switched um, I switched the club this year and I not only switched I I, I um, got to an additional um, club this year, which is more in the east from Austria, and the big dream of mine is like flying to uh, to to fly that um, one thousand kilometer out of return out in return. Fantastic. And that yeah. is that is one of the the big goals for this and the next seasons, um, because there are only a few um, few opportunities to fly to to get these flights because of the weather, you know. Yeah. And so uh, hopefully we'll get um, the chance to 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 fly that out of uh, one thousand kilometer out of return flight. Always important to have goals in gliding. I try set something up for every year as well. Um, For sure. Simon, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I'd recommend the book to uh, the listeners. And uh, I'm thank sure you. our paths will cross in the future. So thank you for the time. Thank you for the nice interview, Harry, and keep up the good work. Cheers. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you Google The Art of Soaring, you should be able to buy a copy where you live. But don't mistake it for another book with the same title. That one's a self-help book. The Thermal Podcast is proud to support the Made in Canada automated task scoring platform, Proving Grounds. Developed by a team from the QNAM Gliding Club in Alberta, it's designed to safely turn novice glider pilots into true cross-country soaring pilots. And it really works. Proving Grounds has proven hugely successful and is now in use in Canada, Europe, the United States and New Zealand. Check out episode number 15 of The Thermal, where I interviewed co-founder Patrick McMahon. For more information, go to their website, which is SoaringTasks.com. That's SoaringTasks.com. I've been flying with Spot Messenger for years. It's an added bit of safety for my pals to find me if I land out or get in trouble. And there are now all sorts of other bits of tech that do the same thing. In New Zealand, Tim Bromhead is the man behind PureTrack. It's an app that combines various data streams like Spot so that you can be followed in real time. It also has all sorts of other applications for contest flying and general club operations. I've reached Tim in Papawai, New Zealand, and there are a few dropouts, but I'm sure it will all make sense. Hey Tim, I gather that I've reached you at a contest. Yeah, thanks very much uh, for having me. I'm... Uh down in Papawai at the moment and uh, down in Wellington and uh, the North Island of New Zealand at the moment for a uh, just a local friendly contest. And and today's a rest day, but the sky looks great, apparently? Uh, well, they're giving it a go today. Um, we thought the weather was going to be not good for flying, but it turns out they're going to give a two-hour task a go, so... See, see what happens. Excellent. Well, that's great. Uh, I, I came off the ski hill today. I'm not gliding for another couple of months until things change up here. But obviously, we're in different hemispheres, and that's how that goes. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we're, uh, well, we 
we quite enjoy doing all our flying while you guys are stuck inside yeah. by the fire. So I saw the, the pure track thing, uh, a Facebook post or whatever. And it looks fascinating. There's so much new tech out there and, uh, it's hard to keep up with it all. So walk me through pure track. How does it work? What is it supposed to be doing for us glider pilots? Yeah, sure. So pure track is, uh, yet another tracking system. And the, I guess one way of describing it, it's almost a cross between Flight Radar 24 and Glide and Seek, which we use for gliding a lot. Okay. And uh, the other OGN trackers. Uh, uh, the key difference is it amalgamates a lot of different data sources from different places, and that includes uh, the FLAM system through the OGN network. We get ADSB data through Flight Radar 24 and ADSB Hub. We get spot and in reach satellite trackers and a lot of uh, different cell phone apps you can use to put yourself on the map as well as uh, make a pure track phone app as well. So I, I'm going to ask and you, then, uh, I, I fly the, I'm going to get in my glider. I've got an iPhone. I've got my spot messenger. I have Flarm in the aircraft. How does it all, what, do I go to your app? Do I plug in details? How does that actually work? Yeah, so a number of systems like FLAM and ADSB will just automatically show up on PureTrack. You don't okay. need to do anything for those. Uh, other things, like if you want to use your cell phone as a tracker, mm -hmm. and it really depends where you are in the world. So in New Zealand here, we have the North Island. We have very good cell phone coverage in the North Island. So a lot of people up here use cell phones and cell phone trackers in their gliders. Mm -hmm. But in the South Island, in the mountains, satellite trackers like spot or in reach right and so the whole point of this is to get it all onto one map so is there any hardware involved well it's up to you uh if uh if you want to use a satellite tracker you'll need to provide your own spot or in reach device right and then that can be linked to pure track so you show up uh i can also sell you a dedicated cell phone tracker that you can install in your glider and that lets you have coverage where, in a lot of countries, um, you might not have FLAM network, for example, the OGN network might not have any coverage. Mm -hmm. So using cell phone trackers works quite well in uh, countries like Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa, and the US. Okay. Uh, you know, we, we have a lot of gliders, but we don't have a lot of FLAM tracking like they do in Europe. So the... the app is it based on an individual aircraft or the pilot or a combination of both or our choice how how would for example if you've got a club and you want to have all your club aircraft hooked up to pure track how would that work yeah so it's all aircraft based generally but you can put other things on it as well like if you want to uh, know where your retrieve crew is for example they could uh, appear on the map as a person rather than an aircraft mm -hmm. so that's uh you can put your entire fleet on. Uh, we've done that at our, a number of clubs around New Zealand, for example. So the entire fleet is tracked automatically whenever someone goes flying in a, in a club aircraft. Now, does that also tie into the, the, the billing situation at a club that you can track the hours in the pilot? Yeah, not yet. Obviously, that's a very nice uh, idea for the future. And... Uh, at the moment, it's primarily about search and rescue. So, no matter what tracking system they're using, 
you show up on the map. Mm -hmm. And then we are starting to work on some other features like notifications and real. Maybe look at uh, takeoff and landing, uh, keeping track of flight times, for example. That's uh, an obvious next feature. Hmm. So are, where do listeners go to... Do they just Google PureTrack and take a look at what you have and how it sort of works to get a visual idea of how it works? I mean, I saw the little video you did and, and I looked up on the screen and I'm really impressed with the way you can see all the aircraft at the same time. It uh, seems like a no-brainer to start using this. Yeah, yeah, well, that's kind of the goal and uh, we've made it completely free to use with all its basic features. The website is puretrack.io mm -hmm. and on the website itself, uh, there's a there's a page deliberately for adding trackers to the system, and we walk you through all the steps necessary for all the different type of tracking systems hmm. to make sure that you appear on the map properly. And uh, then if you really like how it works, uh, I do offer a paid upgrade to get you some extra bonus features. But I really try to make sure that all the primary features needed for search and rescue are completely free. Mm -hmm. You don't have to pay a thing to use it for that. So... I fly with my spot. What are the advantage of, of this tracking system over the spot? I mean, I know on my spot it's got a bit of a lag and it's not perfect, but I gather yours is more in real time? Yeah, so imagine you've got an ADS-B as well as a spot. Which I do uh, in my aircraft, this yeah. Will, uh, it means you can fly with both. Now, when you're somewhere remote, your spot will be primarily showing up, but mm -hmm. as soon as you're in range of an ADS-B receiver then your ADS-B will show up as well. Hmm. And then if you also add a cell phone tracker on top of that, then the chance of being tracked wherever you go is a lot higher, depending on where you're flying, of course. So there's a lot of built-in redundancy. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, it's amazing how often you go out of range of cell phone reception, for example, and then you need a spot or something like that to take over. Uh in the North Island here, most people fly just with cell phone tracking and flam tracking and ADS-B. And that pretty much covers you wherever you go. So you don't need a satellite tracker, which you know, this, costs a lot more, of course. So. This would work for everybody, I mean, not just gliders. I mean, I, I was driving through uh, the Rogers Pass area a few weeks ago, which is west of the Rockies here, but it's another mountain range. And a helicopter had gone down, and it took them a while to find this guy, and uh, it didn't end well, unfortunately. But <laughs> something like this would have led the search and rescue guys to the aircraft a lot faster, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And this is not just for gliders. It, it started off with gliders here in New Zealand, mm -hmm. uh, but we quickly had other people wanting to use it, other power pilots and people from other countries. Mm -hmm. And so that's where PureTrack was spawned from. It caters to uh, paraglider pilots, power pilots. Uh, most of them are being tracked by ADS-B and the reason, you know, because they're higher altitude, that's all, all they need. But uh, it will track you if you're going remote places. This is a great way to do it. You can throw in a spot as well, hmm. and combine it with your ADS-B tracking and get complete coverage where no matter how remote you are. So my wife will really be able to watch where I'm flying when I'm up uh, cruising up and down the valley here. That's that's the thing that I'm I find yes. appealing about this. Yeah, absolutely. So it's great. You know, one of the side effects of this, you know, you can imagine a club using it and being able to keep track of all their gliders. Mm -hmm. 
that uh, all the guys who are at home who aren't flying, they start using it and seeing what all their friends are doing. And then they start wanting to come out and do more flying as well because they can see what they're missing out on. Right. So that's an interesting side effect. And then, of course, there's contest watching. You can uh, watch contests in this. and uh, Yeah, in real time. Uh, lots of other. Yeah, in real time. Um, I was watching the World Champs using Pure Track and uh, I hate to say it, but the tracking on Pure Track was um, better than the official tracking that they provided with the 15-minute delay. So I was going to ask about that. So how Pure Track differs from some of these other contest trackers that are now in use? Yeah, well, well most of them are using the OGN Flam network, which is all piped into Pure Track. So uh, there are some, like in Australia, they have their own separate tracking system as well. Mm-hmm. And so some of those trackers depends on the organizer of the contest, but sometimes they are fed into the OGN and will appear on Pure Track as well. So how many people, clubs, areas of the world are using uh, PureTrack right now? Well, that's a good question. We've we've got about 700 uh, user signups on the website, but you don't actually have to sign up to use it. Okay. Uh, so it's hard to tell, actually. But, uh, uh, well, I, and of course, it's completely free to use and look at and just see where people are. So, uh yeah, but it's picking up steam, especially in countries where uh, out of Europe. You know, in Europe, they've got pretty good flam tracking everywhere. Yeah. But all these other countries that are more sparse, uh, this is a great solution. So talk to me about the concept. Did are, are you in IT? Do you do this for a living? How did you – Are you? I've heard you say we a couple of times. So imagine you're involved with a few other people trying to put this together. Where did the concept come from? Uh, no, it's the royal we um, – at saying that <laughs> the, uh, uh, just myself developing uh, the system at the moment and uh, we've been built, working on it for a number of years we built this a very similar system for New Zealand tracking because we have all these spots flying in the South Island we needed to keep track of where everyone was and we wanted to see them all on one map mm-hmm. so it spawned out of that and then you know in the recent years ADSB has become a lot more um, uh, common in New Zealand, it's now mandatory if you want to fly in controlled airspace. So most gliders have ADSB here. Okay, interesting. So we needed to get all of them on the yeah, map. It's not not and, mandatory uh, here in Canada yet, but I guess it eventually will be. Yeah, each country is slowly switching over to ADSB uh, for their air traffic control. So, um, but then we've got a lot of people who don't ever fly in air traffic control, and they use cell phone trackers instead. So right. they don't need to spend the money on a transponder. So this makes it affordable to be tracked no matter what system you're using. So overseas, do you, have you had any contests or clubs or people that are uh, using this right now? Or are you still trying to get the word out? Yeah, we're really trying to get the word out about it. And uh, that's why this is great. I know it was used by the US team at the World Champs and the New Zealand team. Uh, we've got the Minden gliding site in America, they've started using the system okay. uh, because they really appreciate the flat or the ADSB tracking side of it. And we've got South Africa is quite interested in the system as well. Yeah. So, Well, I'll, I'll be talking to a pal of mine who who is the, the president over at the QNM gliding club on the other side of the Rockies here, and they're hosting the Canadian nationals next, uh, this coming spring. And uh, I'll definitely tell them to listen to this interview and have a look at the website because uh, it would be pretty cool if they use this as well. Yeah, that'd be great. 
And uh, as I say, it's completely free to go and use. So you can try it out and test it out and start using it, but completely free. Right. And then uh, if you really like it, you can buy a subscription to the pro version and uh, help support development. Tell us again what the uh, web, web address is for this. So it's puretrack.io. And that's got links to all the apps and things you can uh, use on your phones and things to actually make yourself appear on the map. Cool. PureTrack.io. Well, I'll be giving it a shot uh, definitely this coming year. Unfortunately, I've still got a couple of months to wait before I'm airborne, but uh, I will be using it. Now, Tim, before I let you go, talk to me about your own gliding. How long have you been flying? What do you fly? And uh, yeah, give give, give me a bit of an idea. Yeah, sure. So um, I've been flying in New Zealand for about 17 years. Uh, I've currently got a Venta CT and fly out of the Waikato, the North Island. Uh, we have a lot of convergence flying around uh, the North Island of New Zealand. So uh, that's kind of my favorite kind of flying. I do a bit of contest flying. And uh, of course, I've got my YouTube channel, uh, Pure Glide. Yeah, I've, I've seen that. Uh, that's cool can... too. Hey, no, the Venta CT, so, remind me, is, is that just with a turbo or is that a self-launcher? I can't remember. Yeah, just a turbo, uh, just to get me out of my sticky situations I keep getting myself into. Well, it's, not, it's nice to have that in the back. <laughs> it always is. I mean, why not, right? Oh, it's. I think I've done about 80 paddock landings over my uh, career in, around North Island of New Zealand, so uh, I'm quite happy to get home for dinner on time now. Right. Although I, I'm getting used to flying a, a self-launch motor glider here as well, but it's still... You don't fire that baby up until you know you've got somewhere to land, right? So it's it's still, it's great when you need it, but you're also always prepared to land out. Yeah, yeah. And I uh, keep reiterating that to anyone who's uh, starting out in a in a turbo, you know. Uh, here in New Zealand, we, we have to have a good airstrip or a good field underneath you. Otherwise, uh, you run into trouble pretty quickly. Yeah, not too many options. And the same, same where I fly here, so... But anyway, it's it's still fabulous to have it in the back. Mm. I have used it a couple of times while circling over the the local airports far away from home. So <laughs> anyway, yeah, hey, exactly. <laughs> hey, it's been it's been good chatting with you. Um, I'll probably give you a call at some point later in the year as I'm planning my trip to Amarama. Uh, hoping to do that this coming win- uh, our winter, your summer. So in a year from now, and uh, I'm sure we'll bump into each other. Excellent. So nice talking to you and. Uh, Looking forward to uh, trying this out uh, myself this coming year. Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me. I've uh, been a long-time listener, so cool. really appreciate your show. Okay, Tim, thank you. Take care. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Tim Bromhead spoke to me from Papawai, New Zealand. If you look up Pure Track on Google, you can find out more. Tim also has a YouTube channel called Pure Glide. <laughs> should have checked SkySight. I'm sure we've all heard from fellow pilots who've missed a great day because they didn't check the right weather app. SkySight has become the go-to weather application for glider pilots around the world. It's tailored specifically for glider pilots by crunching the last-minute weather data for up-to-date forecasts that can't be beat. If you're interested in trying out SkySight to maximize your cross-country flying, use the voucher promo code THERMAL in capital letters and you'll get a 14-day free trial.
if you've listened to this podcast, you may have heard me talk about the LK-10A that I restored. It's a World War II training glider that was used to train combat glider pilots early in the war. The glider's still flying, and it started my fascination with World War II combat gliders, the pilots, and the missions they flew. Germany, Britain, and the U.S. all flew combat gliders. They were used in Nor- Germany, Britain, and the U.S. all flew combat gliders. They were used in numerous missions, including D-Day and the ill-fated Operation Market Garden. These gliders could carry a dozen or more combat troops or cargo like a jeep and trailer, anti-tank guns, fuel, food, and other critical supplies. Most of the combat glider pilots that survived the war are gone now. Any survivors are pushing a hundred or more. Monique Taylor is the author of Suicide Jockeys, The Making of the World War II Combat Glider Pilot. Her connection to the story is a very personal one. Her father was an American combat glider pilot. I've reached Monique at her home in O'Neill's, California. Hello, Monique. Thanks for coming on to the show to talk about the book. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Monique, the dedication to Suicide Jockeys reads, To my father, the bravest man I know. Tell me about your father. My father um, was a World War II glider pilot. He entered the military at 17, and his papers say he had to turn the corpus of his body over to the military, which I'm sure was a dicey proposition. Um, He actually went in as an MP because he was six foot six, and they wanted only tall men for military pilots, Mm -hmm. I mean for military police. He happened to step forward if they had asked if anyone had flying experience. He had 12 hours. The fact they wanted 20 or more didn't really matter at that point to the guys who were (laughs) MPs and they wanted to become pilots. So he kind of stepped forward and volunteered, and he was made a sergeant on the spot. And this would be, what, 1942 or something? This was 1942. Yeah, he was in one of the first graduating classes of glider pilots, yeah. Huh. So, and your father served throughout the war? Did he go into the European theater and that kind of thing? Yes, he did. And I'm trying to really discern his records. I know he was involved in all the major missions with the exception of Bastogne. The problem we have is only 13% of the records from World War II were saved. Hmm. So some to, And then there was a big fire in 1972 at the St. Louis Records Center, which housed all the records. So sometimes we have to piece the records back together. Right. Further, he was in the 314th Troop Carrier Group, which actually only hauled gliders in, in varsity, the last mission of the war in uh, gliders for gliders in the European theater of operations. Um, and so those gliders were all, those glider pilots in the 314th were often on detached service, but it didn't say where they went. They sent them to other glider groups to, or other troop carrier groups to fly. So you're still trying to unravel your, your father's uh, war records. Yes. Trying to unravel it. I had his stories. I wish I'd gotten more details when he was still alive. Right, um, as we all do when we have we lose people from that generation, absolutely. Yeah, and many didn't speak about it. There was a lot of PTSD, well, I think what we would say PTSD now, a lot of them thought, this is just my job. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever known anybody in the military, they'll sell that today, say that today, this is my job. And so we lost a lot of knowledge that way. You, you, there's one uh, story in your book, uh, which I found quite moving, about a pilot who'd already had a number of combat glider missions and crumbled um he came back to fly combat again but he he basically had a nervous breakdown uh, yeah yeah yes they they dealt with it very differently i know my father in one of his letters said said that uh he didn't know how it would be to lose people he was a check pilot before he went overseas Mm -hmm. because they were checking out the gliders and he did this in africa as well Mm -hmm. and many of them died um i think they lost majority of them in the first month 
So he he remembered having to pull these people off the flight line dead or pulling people off the air, you know, the landing zone dead. And he said they all dealt with it very differently. Some just ignored it. Some kind of became loners. Others would gamble the night before. Um, others would, it, it really, it made the new glider pilots very uneasy because the veterans reacted differently. They knew um, what was coming. Yeah. And, and how do you, how do you say to these young guys who are really enthusiastic? Yeah. Uh, you may not become a back. Yeah. And so Some they all dealt with it yeah. differently. Yeah. yeah. So but the, they did have a tradition when they came back that if someone was lost, there was always a bottle of um, whiskey or something in the trunk, and they would all have a toast to them. Hmm. Um, so that was one of the traditions the glider pilots had, because it was a reality. You may not come back. There was a very good... And uh, it was also a way for them to deal with it, put it on a shelf, and get ready for their next mission, right? Get next for the next one, because remember, they had a lot of downtime in between. Mm -hmm. And that was the worst. There, there's not all glider pilots. This is one of the generalizations. Um, there, nothing can ever said, be said the program was this or the experience was this in the glider pilots. But those few that were commissioned officers, um, and there were very few glider pilots that were made commissioned officers rather than in the rank of flight officer, which was kind of like a terminal rank, um, they had administrative duties to do in between. The others had downtime. And that I'm going to touch, you, you just mentioned about the rank, uh, and I read that in the book as well, which I found fascinating. So they weren't considered real pilots because they didn't fly things with motors, but the danger was the same. But they also weren't given the, the same recognition when it came to rank. Uh, right. If you went to officer training or uh, into regular pilot training, you were always an officer. and it, They were sort of uh, the poor cousins, right? Yeah, they were lost in between. And so... Um, when they went in, they, 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 there was a, the rank spiraled off of the fact that who is in command of this load mm -hmm. of planes? Who's in command of the airborne in the glider? Who's in command of the load when they get on the ground? And if everybody in the glider is of lower rank, who is getting them to where they need to be? Or let's get this glider unloaded this here, you know, hit the hedgerows, let's go find the command post. And so it really um, it caused a problem on the feet, on the landing zones in actual battle for quite some time until they sorted it out, which they did eventually sort out. But it was attempt to, an attempt to make them flight officer was an attempt to make them recognized as officers. Mm -hmm. But they didn't have the duties of officers and troop carrier didn't have room. You know, there's only a certain number of slots for each rank in each troop carrier. They didn't have the room for the, the glider pilots to become first, second lieutenants. Uh, maybe there might be one major in a group. I think that I'm, I think that's right. Um, so there was very little room for upward mobility. But you can look at the Vietnam vet, the Vietnam pilots. The helicopter pilot is was a warrant officer, flight officer, and that is a specialization too. Mm -hmm. Their specialization was to fly. Their, theirs is just fly helicopters. The glider pilots was to fly glider pilots unless they were commissioned. Right, right. And became a first, second lieutenant or a major. You know, reading the book as well, I got the sense that it wasn't a very well thought out training program. The pilots who came in at the beginning, the middle of the end, they all had different levels of training, including training to be a combat soldier, which didn't happen till the end of the war. 
Yes, they initially, um, this stems from the fact that they did not develop the doctrine or the, the tactics for the glider. Remember that this was a secret weapon. Uh, Forty Bonne Mal, which, which was one of the best known uses of the German glider, and that fort was taken so quickly, was not public knowledge. Germany, Germany even had the infantry shoulder, soldiers looking like they took the, the fort rather than the gliders, the secret weapon. So by the time America really became aware of the gliders, the allies, I should say, mm -hmm. then they started to go on hyperspeed to develop this glider. But it's really important to understand that legally we could not because until Pearl Harbor, you were in the we, war. Were on a we were on a defensive step not an offensive, and the glider ha did not have a defensive purpose, it only had an offensive purpose. So what happened is you're trying to develop the troop carrier, you're trying to develop the the, the, uh, the paratroopers, and you're trying to, uh, the troop carrier pilot is brand new, you don't have enough of any of these things, who is gonna get precedence in, in flying and landing? Who is going to be in charge of the training for combat well, they're supposed to be infantry, and unlike every other glider program, the American glider pilot was attached to the Army Air Corps rather than the Army or the ground Which Force. Which was the precursor to the U.S. Air Force. and Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. It was the Army Air Corps that just went to the Army Air Forces, and then after the war, it became the Army Air, the United States Air Force. Um, oh. So they were caught in a no-man's land. And, of course, the Army Air Corps didn't train for combat. They didn't have the equipment. They didn't have the right. facilities. So it was really where they they grabbed what combat training they could, where they could, until about 1943. And that came out of the China-Burma-India theater because the China-Burma-India theater had a very unorthodox program because of the jungle warfare and their troop carrier um, – for simplicity, the troop carrier organization was very different, and two fighter pilots were running it. Right. So they, and so, yeah. yeah, they so they wanted them to have the combat training to go in, and that's where the glider pilots started getting the training. You know, it's interesting because the British uh, Army Air Corps, I think it was the Army Air Corps, the, the British gliding units, they all had combat training as well that's as true. being, they were expected to fight when they hit the ground. Yes, and they were highly trained. Yeah. They were very highly trained. I mean, meticulous training, the glider pilot regiments were. So where we put it as secondary, because our doctrine was they will be a pilot first and then they will be used on the ground only as infantry, only in exigent circumstances, but that doesn't even pass muster because crash landing behind enemy lines, yeah. I mean, unlike the power pilot, you didn't get a second round, you couldn't get out. You're behind enemy lines. Chances are you're going to be end up in some kind of altercation. But their, their job, as far as the the higher ups were concerned, was to land those gliders, get the, your equipment, your soldiers, get them out, and then get back to fly another mission. So fight your way back, or however you had to do it, through enemy territory, back to Allied lines, get back to England, and a few days later yes. you're flying another glider, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, they went to the command, they would try and report to a command post, but remember there's different levels of command posts, and who knows, the command posts may have been overrun by enemy, and so then they would be doing other, they'd be running back and unloading gliders that were under under um, heavy um, enemy fire. When they landed, they'd be getting the water, the rations, they'd fight. But by the time, of probably about 1944, they really started getting sharp because the combat training had kicked in. 
And by the point of varsity, our last mission over there, they were Which was sharp the mission across fighters, the Rhine into Germany. Across the Rhine. They were sharp infantry. That they were the 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 spots on the landing zone were chosen where you would land so this equipment land next to each other. So just like anything else, it took time to iron this program out, but there were a lot of casualties in the process that may have been needless. Now, for me, after reading your book, one of the things that really makes it all come alive are some of these fantastic quotes you have from battle reports or something. I'm just going to read one right now, and it's Flight Officer Kenneth T. McGrath, and he writes, After release, had to make a turn over the flak installations and felt hits in the wings. In landing, I had to fly under the power lines and make a low turn into the field, and in doing so was unable to get my left wing up. The left wing hit, and that is the last I remember until I regained consciousness. After regaining consciousness, I found myself upside down in the glider. I got out and then got the co-pilot out and treated the cut on his forehead. Now, these little stories that are scattered throughout your book really bring it alive. How did you find all this information, these first-hand accounts? I was very fortunate because um, my husband is military or was military, and we were stationed in Washington, D.C. We were stationed at um, Andrews Air Force Base, actually, in Maryland. And down the road was a federal records, um, per, federal personnel records center in Sweetland, Maryland. I went in there not knowing anything, and I said, I'm trying to find something on glider pilots. Well, these boxes had not been unpacked or sorted since World War II. Oh, wow. And the archivist went down and found them. And I was actually opening book boxes full of dust. And I was pulling out met notes to medics, one of which is in the book, little, you know, on their little um, notebook that they carried, uh, boots, combat boots, everything. Because after World War II, they just wiped off their desk or kept whatever they felt like keeping. So I was really lucky because before this was put on microfilm, I was in the records. And so I had each of those declassified. I was among some of the first that had these documents declassified, which was just a method of just before you could copy it, they had to declassify it. And they're all declassified stamped. And so I had access to a lot of things. I don't know if they're in existence anymore, but I have over 700 reports. I think I have command reports. I have, um, um, And then eventually this was all moved and the National Archives has, I believe, thinned out their uh, holdings since. And and once it became on microfilm, I think they kind of decided what they would keep and not keep, as well as the fact that um, some of it isn't readable on microfilm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we've kind of lost some of the documents. Again, another layer of losses. But this project, this book, has been years in the making, right? Yes, yes. I finished it in... 1991. Um, but, and I thought about publishing, I talked to some publishers, it, there was no interest. Mm-hmm. It was not, it was not right. It was just n- not right for publishing. And so, um, I actually went back to law school and came back out and thought, you know, before I do anything else with law, I really want to publish this book. I, I really want to get this done. So I started working on it. Um, and here I am and hopefully working on a couple more. Well, I've got to say, for people who are interested in this part of history, what I like about your book is it it has the personal stories, and it also has a a really good history of the entire program, how it started and finished, and the stories behind some of the big battles. So, yeah, congratulations. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, you know, I tried to write it for a multiple audience, a multiple audiences, because there's some people that don't know anything about it, some that know only sections, mm-hmm. and um, some that are experts, but it is 
with the glide, any 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 answer to any question on the glider pilot program is it depends. It depends yep. on when. It depends on who. It there is no there is no one story of the glider pilot. And I think what's been unfortunate in the purpose for writing this book was is again to dispel some of these generalizations. Right. Um, we have some excellent books by by glider pilots who were in the in action. You know they they were there. They take precedence over mine, but sometimes there's a fog of war. You see one, one portion when you went through, what happened in your experience? Right, that little slice of their lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, so this is kind of how many pilots are we actually talking about? It was in the thousands, right? We think there were between six and seven thousand because it grew in a matter of a couple of years from 150, um, and that was the experimental glider program. To they were going to go for eight to ten thousand, and then there were sudden drastic cuts because remember there was problems producing the CG4A, so they didn't. They were graduating these people; they didn't have enough planes, so they. And that's the American worked. combat glider, the call, also called the Waco or Waco. Right? Yes, yes, and so they finally figured out that what they would do is match the number of glider pilots going over to the number of gliders going over. So you didn't have that glut and the remainder would go in combat training. So that's where they sorted it out. But we think about six to 7,000. Um, I was with the national world war II combat glider pilot association at their reunion this past year. I was, a, I'm a researcher with them and um, they had, they found a glider pilot they didn't know existed. And uh, so he was there. He was 100 years old. So who knows? I mean, with the records everywhere, we 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 don't know. We don't know. So uh, six or seven thousand glider pilots, and how many uh, of these CG4A gliders were produced? Ten thousand or something? Don't know. Don't know, eh? Wow. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't. I have never seen a number on them. I know that there was a point where they were, the glider was designed for one way use. So if you look at it in that capacity, it would depend on how many weren't coming back and how many were being used on the missions. And that would depend on, that was a very fluid situation. We never knew, you know, Holland, um, Barcy and, and Bastogne all using different amounts of gliders. Holland was massive um, versus Bastogne, which was relatively few and that, that so, tell, tell us tell us about that particular mission bastogne so that's the battle of the bulge the famous yeah. story they're under siege by the germans and then there's this kind of glider combat glider rescue mission where they're trying to bring in emergency supplies so they can hold off the germans something like that right yeah yeah so one of the big keys in this is that there's two things to understand you have the glider infantry which normally flew in the gliders but not always in bastogne they came in by truck okay so they weren't hauling the troops in they did haul weapons and ammunition, but prior to this, the 101st Airborne's um, field hospital had been overrun, and which was is a no-no. So there were there were very very short on supplies. We had uh, I think it was 10 days of overcast skies. You could not get in. There were no supplies. We were lightly manned, and we're going up against tanks, etc. So the casualties were adding up because when they took the uh, the field hospital, they took a lot of the nurses and doctors. So in Bastogne, there were about two nurses and one doctor, and he was a generalist and relatively new, and he couldn't do the surgeries. There wasn't the equipment to do the surgeries. The medics out in the field didn't have the equipment. So when the gliders came in, and this is something I'm researching now because I am seeing different accounts of this. I believe one glider came in prior to the others, mm -hmm. days prior. I've just read a uh, really- the conditions are horrific. I mean, it's the middle of winter, tons of snow. Yeah. It's- yeah. 
I can't imagine it being worse for a pilot. Yeah, it would be really bad coming in. He came in with a surgeon. Now, the glider pilots brought in, in that flight, only nine personnel total. And so those would have been the surgeons and the nurses, but they brought in a lot of medical supplies as well as ammunition, but a lot of medical supplies. They came in, there was an intelligence breakdown because when they came in, the first wave had, the first day had flown over a very heavily defended corridor by the Germans and there were a lot of losses. The second day that um, there had been a breakthrough and a new corridor had been opened up and word never got the word was passed to have the gliders come in that method that way, but it, that quarter, but it never got to the glider pilots. So they went back in, and the and the tow pilots, who many of them lost their lives, they were determined. They were hats off to those guys. They were going to get them there at the cost of their lives, and that's and part many of them paid that campus. price. These are the guys oh, yeah. flying the Dakotas or the 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 DC threes, uh, civilian term, but uh, yeah, a lot of those men died as well. Oh, yeah. And they were determined they were going to get them there. That program became pretty much seamless by the end. So that was a really important mission in that way to show that the gliders were the supply line. Mm -hmm. And without that supply line, I don't care what army you're talking about. And you can go back as far as you want in history. You cannot win a battle. Right. You're done. Hey, the, the title of your book, Suicide Jockeys, where does yeah. that come from? That's what they called themselves, the suicide jockeys. The title Flying Coffins was another name. Flying Coffins came because some of the parts were produced By coffin in a coffin industry. But the suicide jockeys it came from the fact that they were on a one-way mission. They felt that they were expendable. I did find in some of the tactical reports um, and some of the upper command reports that it trickled down to the actual literature for the glider pilots that you know, airborne is not expendable, but that expanded. Let me take that out for a second. That expanded to all airborne because the, it, the sense I got is they felt that the higher commands and so were kind of using these airborne, the paratroopers, as you know, in market were, oh man, they went through horror. They were being wiped out that these were, these, these special yeah, operation market garden. So that was the, the British American combination yes. attack they were trying to get the bridges over the rhine yeah the british and first market airborne was division the american, was lost. Yeah. yeah market was the american portion but um it, some of the some of the allied commands had really misused the paratrooper because remember they're only equipped to be they are equipped for three days that's why resupply was necessary that's where the glider came in right, right. because they could land right there with everything so in the literature it says you're not expendable they felt they were as expendable as the glider, and so they called themselves the suicide jockeys because it was a suicide mission in many kind of times. How, do we have a number on how many died? We don't have it. I know that the Glider Pilot Association has a list uh, that they have been putting together. I don't. We don't know how many died at this point because I now I differ than a lot of people. A lot of people think we know the number of glider pilots. I don't believe we do. Mm -hmm. I think what well and that we just found one is testimony to that. But I also believe that um, you know are you going to count those that were killed in training? Because right. right. many of many. them died in training. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they weren't glider pilots because they haven't graduated yet. So it depends on how you look at it. I do know that I was told by some glider pilots that at some point. Graves registration and medics hadn't even been assigned to them. So you managed to, because this project had been going on for so many years, I mean, now there are very few of these guys left. Yeah. But 20 years ago when you were working on this, you, yeah. you actually met a lot of these guys. What, 
Yeah. Is there anything that stands out that they told you about some of these missions they flew? I think what stood out to them, first of all, is they felt that they were the bastards of the Army Air Corps. That's that's their words. That people were not interested in their story. That came out again and again. No one cares. No one cares. And there was a real frustration in that. They were hats off to the other services, but they felt that they weren't recognized. They, they, what came through to me is that they did this on sheer guts. They did this on their own skill and they were good pilots because the, some of the left wings that were thrown at them, they were good pilots. So what, why um, have their stories taken the back seat to so many others? You know, I'm thinking of the famous fighter pilots or the, yeah. you know, they, it's an obscure chapter in history, but why was it uh, never given as much credit as it should have received? My belief is, is that we believe the bomber pilots and, 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 no, and my hat's off to all these men, don't get me wrong. Wow, this is a big plane. These guys, you know, they died. They were really skilled pilots. Our fighter pilot, your fighter pilot's a sexy stuff. Oh, mm-hmm. wow, yep. he's got in here, he's flying this. Here's a guy with no motor. There, The word got around, he had bad eyes out, he was a washout. And that's not the story. Mm-hmm. But that's the story that's been told. And they were pushed aside. I mean, they were, they were never given accolades by the Army Air Corps. Um, they earned the respect of the airborne who said, we'll never say that they fly with no motors again. Right. Um, and I think that's where they kind of took the back seat and that has stayed. And that's what my mission was, is to get these people known, these guys known, because they were excellent pilots. They were excellent fighters. And I would go so far as to say those that weren't probably didn't live. Right, right. I can't imagine, you know, I, I, I read in your book, as well uh, from a flying point of view, from a piloting point of view, that these glider pilots trained in basically empty gliders, combat gliders, and the first time they flew a fully loaded glider with higher stall speeds and all sorts of complications and the different handling was on their first combat mission. I can't imagine what the terrifying situation they were put in. Well, if you figure that some of these gliders had bulldozers, now the bulldozers were normally put in the very front of the formation because to review, to uh, um, uh, re- decrease the prop wash because it's already dangerously overloaded. Mm-hmm. And they had Jeeps in CBI, they flew mules in and, and were dangerously overloaded and they were going over the Himalayas. But what they normally did, and this is why they dove so fast, is that especially they put the heavier, the gliders with the heavier loads in the front and hopefully with the experienced pilots, I would hope, and then they drop like a bomb to get out of the way. Because you have to remember, it's not unusual for a wing to come off on the glider. There's no parachutes on any of these guys. And you've got equipment and men spiraling through the air, through the formation on H- the ground. Hundreds of gl- so hundreds of tow planes, hundreds of gliders. Yeah. Your, your airspace is jammed. Gliders yeah. are being shot down. Planes are being shot. I can't imagine it. Well, another thing I read in your book, which was interesting, that so these aircraft in the front with the the, the gliders or the jeeps and that sort of thing, the the cockpits in the Waco gliders were hinged, and the pilots just before landing would sort of unhook the hinge because it was connected to the jeeps. So the heavy equipment would generally go roaring through the cockpit and kill the pilots unless they pulled the pins on the hinged cockpit. Yeah. Initially, now I was told by the glider pilots that they were told by you know, the organization, the Army Air Corps, don't use that uh, until the very end unless you have a Jeep or something. And when you hit the ground, pull that le- leverage because that lever, because it was hinged through the ceiling, I believe it was, down to the Jeep. And when the Jeep surged forward, it yanked it forward or the bulldozer. Mm-hmm. So they were lifted mm-hmm. up out of the air. But 
those cockpits, and so they're they're on their backs looking at the sky. Those cockpits sometimes fell off. I have reports of them just falling and hitting the ground with these guys on their back. Right. But right. they started doing it on every, all the missions if they felt it was appropriate. Again, you can't say everyone at any time sure. in glider pod. If you're sitting in the cockpit and you've touch- got a, a small bulldozer behind you, and you yeah. know you're going to hit hard and stop very quickly, the last thing you want is you know surviving the actual landing but having that bulldozer come through and kill you. Yeah. And I, and so they would do it routinely is what I was told. Hmm. Now Hmm. I did see some command paperwork that said, go ahead and pull it, the lever. It wasn't designed for them to do that. It was designed to load and unload. I did see one video that is somewhere in the national archives and I wish I could find it where the, the glider lands and the cockpit comes open and this Jeep comes out. But as the cockpit lifts, so much sand falls out of it at it pretty much covers the guy about up to his armpits in the Jeep. That's how deep and how heavy they were going in and it's plowing up the earth in some cases. Yeah. You know, for, for some of our listeners, so look up CG4A or Waco glider. Mm-hmm. There'll be stuff online about how this glider was designed and how the whole front cockpit with the side-by-side pilots would hinge back. It's right. a pretty interesting bit of design. Yeah, and the the English version of that version of that was the Hadrian. It was the CG4A that the British used. right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So this is a, a fascinating book. What what have you learned that you you didn't know from stories from your father and that sort of thing? What 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 is the thing that after all these years of research stands out for you? I you know, honestly, what really stands out to me is the enormity of this training program. Um and the um, uh this program, this glider program and the incredible work America did putting all of this together. You know, we have stepped out of World War One. We are stepping into World War Two, and we are in a whole different ball game. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we could, in four short years, put all of this together—your troop carrier became seamless with the glider pilots, as much as circumstances would allow. You know, your paratroopers the, they started to really respect the glider infantry and the glider pilot that they worked as a team. But the enormity it took. For America to go, America to go from nothing to building this program and developing the tactics. So on that as that has stood out to me tremendously, and and come to you know come to the fore much more in writing this. But secondly, was the uh, the devotion many of the troop carrier pilots had, the the, the tow pilots had. Right, right. The symbiotic um, relationship. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, many of them said get out, get the rest of the crew out because I've got to get them there. Mm -hmm. Um, As far as the glider pilot, man, they were heroes. In my eyes, I I, I honestly have to say, I don't know how I I could get myself to go in that glider. I mean, for example, my father saw, he he was glider operations officer in varsity and he saw, went to go, his two of his friends were flying cargo, it was gasoline and they hit a power line. Jeez. And he went over to go identify them, and they were like over six foot tall. He had gone through training this with them. This is the last mission of the war. And he said they were so burned, he couldn't even recognize them, and their bodies were so small. Hmm. And yet he would have gotten in a glider again. So you and heard I, these stories as a child growing up, some of them from your father, but I, I guess the research and speaking to other pilots has probably given you a, an entirely new appreciation for what your father went through. 
Yeah, I, I think that the glider pilots were kind of holding to themselves for many, many years. Mm. They were their own group. And some what was fascinating to me is a lot of the German glider pilots were talking to them and they would kind of compare their experiences and the German to the German fighter pilots and everything, which I was like, you know, 10 years old going, man, this is weird. Why are you talking to this guy? They're trying to kill you. you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it, I, 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 I think that the glider pilots grew as well as this is this morphed over the years. Um, and we got further away from the war. Um, I think they grew as well, but I think it's tragic that many of them went to their graves thinking nobody cared. Well, you obviously care. You've written a great book. Um, it's available, I think on, with all the famous online retailers, Amazon and all of that, I did a quick search for the title. So it's pretty easy for people to get. Is that right? Yep, it certainly is. Yeah. And if you know anyone who likes World War II or anyone who likes aviation history or anyone just wants to know what their dad did, um, it's it's a because there's so many people that have no idea, right. have no idea what their dad did. And hopefully, you know, the more this book gets out there, this book is not for me. This is for them. They will get known. They deserve their place in history because after this generation, it's gone. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's gone. Yeah. If we don't keep this alive, it is gone. And these men, so many died, their families mourned, their families lived a lifetime with these guys dying. Their story needs to be told. Well, you did a great job telling that story. Thank you very much for that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I highly recommend uh, the book for anybody that's interested in this. Uh, so appreciate Thanks it. We'll talk so much, again Brian. at some point, I hope. So thank Yes, you. I would love to. I would love to. And I'm going into always going into more detail about the glider pilot program. So I'm always learning new things. So anytime. And thank you so much, so much for telling their story. This is so important for history. All right, Monique, thank you. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Monique Taylor spoke to me from O'Neill's, California. She's the author of Suicide Jockeys, the making of the World War II combat glider pilot. The book is available for most online retailers like Amazon. For those of you interested in World War II history, this book is a must-read. Martin Simons was a gliding renaissance man. He first fell in love with gliding in England as a young man before moving to Australia in the late 1960s. He was a glider pilot. He restored gliders, built model gliders, organized contests, flew in contests, edited the Australian gliding magazine for many years, and essentially lived and breathed gliding. He was also a founding member of the Vintage Gliding Association. In his lifetime, he was a huge contributor to the gliding movement both at home and abroad. I know Martin for his fabulous sailplane reference books on gliding. I owned a vintage World War II training glider and loved the detailed drawings and history about each aircraft. Martin died earlier this year at the age of 93. Margaret Simons is Martin's daughter. I've reached her in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, Margaret. Thanks for coming on to speak about your father. It's a pleasure. So I read that his ashes were spread at the, a local gliding club at Horsham uh, over the last weekend. That must have been very moving. Yes, it was. Um, you know, I mean, after a death of this sort, there's so much to do, you know, a lot of it logistical. Um, but yes, driving out into the Wimmera region of Victoria to the Horsham Gliding Club, getting them up in the air and then... I wasn't sure whether we'd be able to see them scattered or not, but in fact they made a, a trail against, you know, the blue, cloudless blue sky. It was a very beautiful moment, yes. I, I think your father would have approved. 
Yes, well, his words to us um, were, you know, just throw me into a thermal. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'm not sure there was a thermal, but um, right. there were plenty of thermals around that day, so hopefully. <laughs> now, I, I have memories of meeting your father about 30 years ago at the International Vintage Sailplane Meet in New York and bought his books and followed some of his stuff over the years. And um, I wonder, what what was it about your dad that he was so fascinated with gliding? What did you get any insight into that? Oh, well, that's a, that is really the question of his life. But it started very early. Mm-hmm. Um, Dad grew up in uh, the little village of Eam um, in Derbyshire. Um, he was evacuated there from Sheffield during the Second World War. His right. father worked um, in the steelworks in Sheffield, and obviously that was a target for bombing. So the family was evacuated. And, you know, I think he had a pretty lonely and difficult childhood in many ways. Um, you know, lots of people who suffered through the war did. Sure. Um, but he always described to me sort of, I mean, he loved the landscape um, in Derbyshire. And he described to me sort of walking, a, you know, through the you know quite hilly and mountainous country there and looking up and seeing a glider with, you know, fabric doped wings against the sun and the sun shining through the wings and uh-huh. just being absolutely, you know, rendered speechless by the beauty of it. And so he began to walk to the Camp Hill Gliding Club, um, spend lots of time there. His parents were opposed to this. They thought he was wasting his time. And aviation was it from Mm -hmm. then on, and and specifically um, gliders and not powered aviation. Right. Um, It was his lifelong passion. It wasn't his job. He often says if it had been his job, he wondered if he would have maintained the passion but um every weekend all his spare time really was spent in various ways on aviation when i was a little girl he couldn't afford to fly full-size gliders but he was always building models and then as soon as he could afford it he was uh, off most weekends to dunstable gliding club i imagine you spent a fair amount of time uh, at those gliding clubs growing up Oh, yes. We used to have a caravan at Dunstable Gliding Club, London Gliding Club, I think is its proper name, but it was at Dunstable. Um, And we used to, you know, go up on the downs there and uh, have picnics and so on with mum while dad was flying. I can't remember my first flight in a glider, but it was certainly, you know, before I could talk. Good good memories. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Mm. Now, I, I read somewhere, I think in the obit that was published somewhere, that when your father first learned to fly, it was in a primary glider and that he actually injured his back. Yes, he did. So um, this was at Camp Hill and he was just a teenager. He was waiting to be called up um, in you know what turned out to be the final days of the war. Um, but he was learning to fly and, yeah, he had a bad accident. I mean... Back in those days, there were no two-seaters. It was a little primary glider, and the instructor used to run along on the ground and yell instructions. And basically, he stalled um, off the launch and broke his back and his leg and ended up lying flat on a wooden board for I'm not sure how long, but months. And as a result, of course, by the time he was fit enough to be called up, um, the war was over, but he did uh, serve as part of the occupying occupation forces in Germany for a while. Right. And, mm. and he still went back to gliding after suffering such a such a bad injury. Exactly. Well, that <laughs> exactly. says something about it your all, dad. Says it all, doesn't it? I mean, he admits that, you know, like many of us, like myself, I, I learned to fly. You know, he, he was frightened and too proud to admit that he was frightened in those early days of flying. Mm-hmm. But, yes, nothing was going to prevent him from getting back into it. Now, I read also that when you guys immigrated to Australia that, 
apparently he made sure he was moving to an area where there were definitely gliding clubs and good gliding. Exactly right. I mean, it was kind of a family joke, but it was true. <laughs> so mum and dad, you know, decided to emigrate. I know they looked at Canada as well as at Australia, but they decided on Australia and dad was applying for jobs. And he was offered two jobs simultaneously, one at Sydney University and one at the University of Adelaide. And the way in which he made the decision between those two was that the gliding was better in South Australia. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Now, look, the, the reason I got to know your dad a little bit was these books that he wrote, these fabulous books about gliding. They're, they're almost Bibles of uh, reference books for the, the gliding uh, world. What was the germ for that? How did your dad get into writing those types of things? Well, he was always a writer. I mean, that's something that I've probably inherited from him. Right, because you're a um, journalist, yeah. Yeah, I'm a journalist, yes, and I've written books too, and not, not on gliding. Um, but, um, you know, he wrote some very early geography textbooks and so on, which was his actually his job. You know, he was a, a geographer initially. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, he was always fascinated by aerodynamics. He was largely self-taught. You know, he taught himself maths and taught himself aerodynamics. And he loved the vintage gliders in particular, I think mm -hmm. always going back to that teenage sort of vision of the, of the glider overhead. Right. Um, it, you know, it's just very like Dad. You know, he was so passionate about something and he would delve right into it. He, he wouldn't be superficial about it. He taught himself uh, drafting in order to do you know, the beautiful drawings that are in his books on um, vintage gliders. Well, that's just it. Those, those, it it mm. is so professional. I mean, you would think he was a professional um, art director or graphic artist or something. No, well, he, he self-taught. I mean, obviously, he used a computer, as was one of the first houses in our suburb, to have a home computer, one of those very uh -huh. early Apple computers that are museum pieces now. Uh, but he bought that very largely, you know, because it was good for that kind of work and taught himself to do it and, you know, was meticulous about it. Um, it just says something about his personality that right. he threw himself into the topic and was passionate about it. And when he wasn't actually out on the gliding field gliding, he was writing about it, studying it, um, just completely, you know, absorbed in it. But he did everything from organising gliding contests to actually competing in contests to running mm. the Australian magazine. I mean, he... he it sounds like he almost had as much fun on the ground dealing with gliding as he did in the air. Yes. Well, he was the editor of Australian Gliding for, I think, just over 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I was also got involved in that because at this stage I was uh, into my teen years and developing an interest in journalism, which became my career. So I was his editorial yeah, assistant for some of that time. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, I mean, if he saw or a job in the gliding world that he, you know, thought could be done better. Um, and as I say, he was always a good writer. Then, you know, he would put his hand up for it. He used to complain about that occasionally. He was on the committee of the Wakery Gliding Club. Yes, in the gliding world, people like your father are marked. He'll do the <laughs> job. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And, you know, occasionally he, I think he would feel overloaded and, and um, you know, would complain about it a bit, certainly with competition flying. Mm -hmm. He, I mean, he never, he was never a national champion or anything of that sort. Um, he used to enjoy it, but I think he was just as happy flying tasks by himself, right. you know, just exploring the region. Um, he was, you know, he never loved competition flying. Mm. 
Was there ever a, a flight or something that stands out that your dad had talked about, or was it just the whole thing altogether? No, the whole thing altogether. I mean, I, I very clearly we used to be his crew during gliding competitions ah, yeah. and, and just generally. And so, you know, I have many hours of memory of sort of sheltering up under a fiberglass wing on a very hot Australian day, waiting for launch and all that sort of thing. Uh-huh. A lot of my teenage memories are caught up with, you know, hanging around gliding fields. Um, but, you know, I remember the gliders he used to fly um, before we emigrated from England. I don't actually remember this, but I've been told about it. He bought a wreckage of a glider and restored it single-handed. Um, and sold it. We, we called it the Phoenix because it really was <laughs> rising from the flames almost. Well, your dad sounds um, like one of these guys when he puts his mind to it. This, these are the days before YouTube. Your dad would have to go to the library, get books, talk to people, take notes. Exactly, yeah. He had studied woodwork um, in his teens, so he had some woodworking skills. But, yeah, I mean, to be able to completely rebuild the glider is extraordinary. Um, and then, you know, he owned a Lebel. Um, that's probably the first glider I have a clear memory of him um, mm-hmm. owning, and then a Kestrel, um, and you know various other gliders, either in syndicates or on his own. So right. I suppose I probably remember the gliders as more than I remember anything else. I remember a lot of retrieves, picking mm-hmm. him out of remote Australian paddocks. <laughs> <laughs> the life of a glider pilot, and yet sounds mm. like your father lived it to its fullest. Absolutely. No, it was his it was his abiding passion right up until the end. Um, you know, I mean, when I was visiting him in the last months of his life and sadly, dad suffered from dementia, so he wasn't the person he had been. Mm-hmm. But he still used to get sailplane and gliding magazine. And I would often find him just leaping through it and looking at the pictures of the gliders. Huh. And while he was still making any sense at all, he'd say things like, oh, I must get out. You know, I must get out and do some flying. Uh, that's lovely. <laughs> That's lovely. Mm. Well, Margaret, I I really appreciate you taking the time and and talking about your dad. I know there are people all over the world in the gliding movement who've read his books and may have met him over the years. And uh, it's a real um, honor for me to be able to talk about him on the podcast because he, he really did contribute so much to gliding. Well, thanks for your interest. All right. You take care and thank you. That's all right. I hope that goes well. Okay. (laughs) Okay, Good luck with it. Bye. Margaret Simons spoke to me from Melbourne, Australia. That's it for episode number 46 of The Thermal. I will be back again in March with another show that will include a riveting tale of a successful outlanding after the sustainer propeller failed to retract. Thanks for all the positive feedback to keep this podcast growing. I'm hoping to ask you to please get one or more of your gliding pals to subscribe as well. So how many countries is the thermal herd in? I actually don't know. So drop me a line and tell me where you are and uh, how long you've been listening. Finally, if you have any good interview ideas, please let me know. I can be reached at the thermal podcast, all one word at gmail.com. That's the thermal podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for centering the thermal. See you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe.